0: My friends, would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here today and all of us who are joining online. Lord, we ask that you take my words and make them yours. That you take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And that you take our hearts and set them on fire for you. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sorry, I have one of those too. Have you ever known someone who, um, who says they follow Jesus, but you know they don't? Whoa, that was loud. Wow, That's a good response. <laughs> that was exactly the response I was hoping for. It's great, right? We all right, They talk the talk, but they absolutely do not walk the walk, right? Um, or, or maybe we know people who, you know, we know from personal experience, were at one time very devout and, and very faithful Christians at one point, and now they just don't seem to be. Right? These are ultimately questions about salvation, right? What is it, and how does it work? And and how can someone who we thought was saved be acting like they're not? How can someone who's in church and hearing the word week in and week out be acting like they don't? Uh, what? How does that work? Well, what if salvation is not like a singular event or a moment in time. What if it's a lifestyle? We've been uh, spending the last few weeks going through uh, the the catechism of our church, the basic foundational beliefs that that we agree are true. And the first three weeks were sort of what we call ecumenical affirmations—things that the Christians in all times and all places agree are true, we're, we're deep in the middle now of the things that make Methodists actually distinct. And last week I talked about the means of grace, which are the, the, the things that God has provided for us that allow us to tap into God's grace in our daily lives things that God has instructed us to do so that we can be infused with his grace. We have prayer and scripture as well as communion and baptism. These are things that God himself has created and instructed his disciples to do so that we are accessing his grace all the time. But now we have to actually talk about what grace is and what it does for us. And ultimately that means how it saves us. So we're starting in John's gospel and I'm just going to be The scriptures are just going to kind of be interspersed throughout the the sermon. So you're going to have to pay close attention when I read. But in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, this is John the Baptist speaking. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of the world. So when John calls Jesus the lamb of God, he's making a statement that really is, uh, it's really loaded with meaning. You know, to, to Jews living in the first century, a lamb was more than just a delicious meat. I mean, they ate it, they liked it, but it wasn't just something you use for that. The, that phrase, the lamb of God, is going to call to mind for anyone who is listening to John the Baptist, the Passover lamb. Because in Egypt... When God sent the angel of death to strike down all the firstborn, the Hebrews were instructed to take a lamb and kill it and spread its blood around their doors and to eat the lamb that night, all so that the angel of death will pass over them. Now do you catch all the symbolism there that's carried over into Christian belief that that the blood of the lamb saves us from death? Eating the lamb nourishes the people for the journey that comes immediately after they're saved from death. But that phrase also brings to mind, for any of John's listeners, this image from Isaiah 53, verse 7. This isn't going to be up on the screens. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now John the Baptist says all this before Jesus is arrested and crucified. He's telling everyone right from the very beginning of his gospel how this is all gonna end. And the reason for all of that, the reason he says that, the reason that's how it's gonna play out, is explained in John 3.16. But you have to keep reading a little bit. It's 3.16-18. through For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. God so loved the world that he would stop at nothing to save it. And it's important that we pause for a second and recognize what the text actually says. Because all too often we hear it as, uh, for God so loved the human race. Or for God so loved the, the Christians. Or for God so loved the Americans. Or since we're in Corpus, God so loved the Texans, right? Right. Uh, We hear it as being really specific towards us. But what it says is, for God so loved the world, which implies all of us, but it also implies all of his creation. Everything he made, every animal, every plant, every rock, every grain of sand, God created it all. And if you pay attention when you read Genesis, you'll notice he calls all those things good, but he does not call us good. We are the only part of God's creation that is not singled out as being good when we're made. What happens is God creates the people, and then he steps back. After he gives us our instructions, take care of my creation, and then he steps back, and he calls all of creation good. And it's not because God doesn't love us or God doesn't think that the humans that he made are are good. They still are at that point, but it's because that omission will always remind us that we're not as special as we think we are. Our goodness is not independent. Our goodness is tied to the rest of God's creation, and specifically it's tied to how we are fulfilling God's original commandment to care for the rest of his creation. Because God loves the whole of his creation, and our failure to follow God has imperiled the whole of his creation. We're meant to be the link between God and all the other things that he has made. Our job, our whole reason for existing, is to be the channels through which God's wisdom and order and goodness flow into the world that he has made. So when we fail, we cut off the whole of creation from its Creator. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. See, we're not saved from sin so we can leave the world behind. We are saved from sin for God's purposes. We're saved precisely so that we can begin to do what we were created to do, which means salvation is not complete for any of us until Jesus comes back. Salvation can't be one moment in which we pledge ourselves to Jesus. It can't be one prayer of repentance we we pray one time in response to his saving grace. What so many of us in the Christian West have done in recent years is we've confused salvation with justification. So we have to talk now about the grace of God, and in particular, our understanding of grace in the Methodist world and, and how it's unique. Now you may have heard, if you've grown up in Methodist churches, you may have heard Methodist pastors talk about the threefold grace of God before, but that's not entirely accurate because Wesley talked about four different graces that God gives us. So first he talks about prevenient or preventing grace. This is the grace that God extends to all people everywhere, whether they're believers or not. No matter where they live, no matter what they have done, no matter what gods they worship or how evil they are, God's prevenient grace is still being poured out upon them and still being given to them. This is the grace that calls us back to God, the grace of God that works against human nature. See, we believe in original sin, which means we believe that all of us are born inherently sinful, that human sin has, on the whole, twisted and warped human nature to such an incredible degree that we are utterly incapable of doing anything good. That all our desires, all our choices will be evil. So much so that we would actually be incapable of choosing to follow Jesus on our own. Now, Up to this point, uh, we're not that different from our Calvinist friends. We both acknowledge the reality of this problem. That original sin has corrupted human nature so badly that we are hopelessly evil. And there has to be some kind of solution to this problem. and, And the Calvinists get it wrong here, and you can tell them I said that. Because the Calvinist answer is that, yes, we're we're all hopelessly evil, so God chooses to save some of us. It's predestination. right? God chooses who he's going to save. We have no free choice in the matter. God just decides who's going to be saved and who won't be saved. And the problem is, if that's true, God is kind of terrible. That's not a God I want to worship. That's a God who has created people just for the sole purpose of making them and sending them to hell. And I don't see that God in the Bible. That's a God who is responsible for every act of evil ever committed and I don't see that God in the Bible. And no matter how hard the the Calvinists may try to argue that point, there is no logical, reasonable way around it. If they're right about our lack of free will, if they're right about predestination, then that is all true. And I just don't see that in the Bible. Which is why we reject that idea altogether. This is why our understanding of prevenient grace is so important. Because what we believe is that God's answer to the problem of human corruption is to extend his grace into the world, the entirety of it, whether they believe in him or not, to counter the corruption of human sin. That's why it's prevenient or preventing grace, because it prevents us from going all the way down the path that our corrupted nature would lead us on otherwise. This is why people who don't believe in Jesus are capable of being loving, generous, and kind, just as we are. Because they have God's grace in them still. Even though they don't believe in God, his grace is working in them. God's prevenient grace is at work in every human being who has ever been born. It counters the effects of of human sin. It empowers everyone to be loving and kind and generous and patient and humble. Which is why it's perfectly normal to encounter people who are not connected to a church who don't believe in Jesus, who are just as nice as you all. And maybe nicer. You know who you are. (laughs) Because God's grace is still at work in them, even if they don't recognize it, even if that's not what they would call it. God's love for us is so deep and his mercy is so great. He gives that free gift of grace to everyone. Now obviously people can and do resist that. But God freely gives his prevenient grace to all people so that all people can freely choose to resist evil and do good. And so that all people can freely choose whether to follow Jesus or not. Because God doesn't like to compel people. This, by the way, is the grace that infants receive when we baptize an infant. It's God's prevenient grace. Now, the second type of grace that Wesley described, and the one that uh, gets neglected most often, especially in the last century or so, is what he called convincing or convicting grace. And to explain this, we're going to read a little bit out of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. But God, who comforts the down... Oh, that's the wrong verse. Ignore that part. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death convincing or convicting grace this is the grace of god that reveals to us the depth of our own sin and it brings us to that point of repentance and to be clear this is not shame or judgment it's not it may be a painful moment when you realize your own sin but if it's god's grace that has brought you to that point you should not be feeling shame but maybe a sense of grief and, and a holy grief at that a grief that moves you to repentance which simply means to, to turn from your sin and embrace holiness. And all of this is a gift of God's grace, that God guides us to that point where we can see how we have fallen short and feel no shame, but instead understand that we just need to repent. And see, when we repent and when we put our faith in Jesus, in that moment, we are justified. This is the moment that so many people assume is, is your salvation, but it's really only a part of it. This is the moment when you are made right with God, the moment when the blood of the Lamb of God directs the angel of death to pass over you. The moment that the chains of our slavery to sin and death are shattered and we're free to begin the journey out of Egypt and to the promised land. But it is not the end. So now we come into the letter to Titus. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So when we are justified, now we receive Sanctifying grace, the grace that makes us holy, the training of the Holy Spirit. Because salvation is a journey. When God set the Hebrews free from slavery in Egypt, that was just the beginning of their long journey to the promised land. And along the way, He was constantly teaching them what it meant to follow Him, what it meant to be His people, what it meant to be holy and to trust in him. And when Christ sets us free from slavery to sin and death, we still have a long journey ahead to the resurrection and to our future with him in the new creation. And along the way, the Holy Spirit will be constantly teaching us what it means to follow him, what it means to be his people, what it means to be holy and to trust in him. And we have to keep choosing him. One of the most important lessons that any couple has to learn uh, is that love is not an emotion. You don't feel it. Love is a choice that you make. And every couple that's been married for more than 12 hours knows that you do not always want to love your spouse, right? (laughs) We all know it. It happens, right? There are plenty of days when you wake up and you don't like your spouse very much. You wish they weren't lying in bed next to you, right? Y'all are laughing too hard at that one. Um, on those days, you have to choose to love them anyway. <laughs> that was a good laugh at that one right there. Right? You have to choose to love them anyway. And to stay married, you have to choose to love them every day, again and again and again, even on days you don't want to. Because that's what love is. That's what love means. Love means you choose them over and over again, no matter what. No exceptions. And if you've read the Bible, you should know that that is exactly what we mean when we say God loves us. God chooses us again and again, no matter what no matter how thoroughly we reject him, no matter how many times we embrace our own sinful desires instead of him, God still chooses us. Every time. And part of our understanding of salvation as Methodists is that we have to keep choosing God too. Every day you have to wake up and choose God no matter what. Even if you don't really like him all that much that day. And don't lie, you've all had days where you didn't really like God all that much. Even when you're facing trials that have pushed you to your limit and you don't understand why God has not relented, you have to keep choosing him. See, the struggle faced by the Hebrews in the desert was that they were merely human and they were given a task that is impossible by human standards. But God never expects us to do things we cannot do. We have to make the choice to follow God or not. Now, even that choice would be impossible on our own, but thanks be to God, he gives us the grace to make it possible. Even before we want to follow him, God's love for us is so great that he sends us his grace to prevent us from becoming so evil and so destructive that we destroy ourselves and the world around us before we ever have a chance to choose him. God's grace is at work in our lives from day one restraining us, holding us back, working against the effects of sin in our lives, whether we want it to or not, whether we ask him to or not, he is always there. And God's love for us is so great that he gives us his grace so that we are able to see the depth of our own sin and turn to him in repentance. And God's love for us is so great that he himself has provided the means by which our sins are passed over and we are saved from death. God's love for us is so great that he dwells within us, training us to be holy so that when the day comes, that when the dead are raised to eternal life, to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth, we will already be prepared for what that life is like. Living as a Christian is training for life in eternity. We call Jesus the Lamb of God. Because his blood saves us from death like the blood of the Passover lamb. And on that first Passover, eating the lamb that had been sacrificed, nourished, and strengthened the Hebrews for the journey that followed. And for us, eating the Lord's Supper infuses us with God's sanctifying grace, which nourishes and strengthens us for the journey of faith. See, God's thought of everything. And he's provided everything. Now, we're always free to reject God if we so choose. He's been with us every step of the way. He always will be. Every aspect of our salvation is an act of God. The only thing he doesn't do for us is make the choice. And it's a choice that we have to keep making every day. We have to keep choosing God because we're all free to choose or reject God every day he won't hold you against your will. If you don't want him, he'll let you go. But if you choose him and you keep choosing him, he will keep pouring grace upon grace into you. He'll provide for you every step of the way. But he'll also teach you and train you. And folks, those lessons may be hard. It's not easy following Jesus. It's not easy being like him. If you need evidence of that, just go read the story where he gets killed for being Jesus. It's not not easy. But thanks be to God, he has provided a means of sustaining ourselves along the way. My friends, salvation is a lifestyle. God invites us to live it He invites us to confess our sins and come to his table and eat the meal that sustains us as we follow him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.